0: Welcome to B- bold america i 'm your host, Christine Barrington, filling in for Jill this week, and it is a gift to do so. I am captivated by this topic today. Our program is the Cooney Manifesto: The time for Cooney is now, and what is Cooney? Well, it is both a reimagining of the Japanese word for nation and an approach to reviving the urban rural connection through cultivating rural communities in politically and geographically isolated places. KUNI is a community that achieves a balance between belonging and freedom and shows what happens when dedicated people invest their hearts, minds, souls, and backs into a community and live in reliance with one another. Well, we have big things to do, and our guest is Richard McCarthy, who is the co author of KUNI, a Japanese vision and practice for urban rural reconnection. He is the founder and former executive director of Market Umbrella in New Orleans. After studying political Science at the London School of Economics, he returned to put ideas into action. And Cooney is one of the important ways that he is doing it. Richard, welcome to Be Bold America.
1: Thank you much for having me here. I'm thrilled to be
0: here. I am thrilled to be speaking with you. So, Cooney is an incredibly important and innovative book. Um, It's a multifaceted word, too, but ultimately, it's about the genius and power of community. So, I want to start there with that word, because community is easy to say, but its meaning, I think, is kind of of elusive, isn't it? We think we know what it means, but it seems like modern society has been kind of severed from its organic and embodied understanding of how to sustain effective communal structures. And we see many well-intended community efforts fail. So you and Seyoshi Sakihara, the founder of KUNI and the co-author of this book, um, you must have a really potent connection around this theme of community. Could you speak to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I um, and I only met Seyoshi um, Sakihara, I guess, in the last Four years, and when I met him, I felt as though I'd met like my the, my mirror image, um, kind of Cooney blood brother. Where <laughs> um, I would spent so much of, of my time using food as a community organizing principle that we build community around through urban-rural linkages, but I'd always approached it from the city looking out to the rural. And I also saw weaknesses and great strengths with that. Um, But I was so enamored with both the depth, the creativity, and the practicality of what he was doing and and is still doing in rural Japan, um, in that it uh, is um, authored from and originated from the rural looking to the urban. And uh, we see many great instances of that in in North America. But they do tend to be private efforts, private efforts in agritourism, private efforts in um, uh, rural enterprises. Uh, But we don't see in this sort of depth of a political perspective of appropriating the ancient Japanese term for nation to mean community, and to mean a very particular kind of approach to community, um, I don't think we've seen that. And that's what really excited me, because it was um, often the voice that's not heard, which, um, you know, and I come from many years of working in farmers markets and in food systems, and even at our best moments, we still look at rural areas as the places that produces our food, rather than that these are places that are communities that should function, economies, political spaces. And uh, I I think that the ideas that uh, sekihara san has has developed, and not developed in an ivory tower, but developed out of practice, is um, really just captured my imagination. And um, it was not intended to be a book, but we met. Uh, We spent a lot of time together exploring, trying to understand what each other meant, because it's such an incredible both exciting but, but real cultural gap between Japan and North America. And I found that um, his ideas were too too exciting to just nod and, and nod appreciatively, but actually examine what might it mean for us in North America.
0: Well, you know, you, you speak of, you know, rur- rural and urban. And when I think of that, uh, you know, we're all watching this huge divide being widened and kind of leveraged through certain stakeholders in America. And we have so much to gain through actively working to bridge this divide. And and we have so much to gain by having better relationships in these areas that often get Left behind, And you see that really beautifully demonstrated in, um, in Cooney, and, and how he goes back. You you talk about he does a J-turn because he grew up in this region that he went back to. Could you um, speak about the J-turn?
1: Oh, I'd love to. It, <laughs> it, my, my eyes just lit up when I, I learned, and this is working with the Japan Society, organized an exchange between... Uh, North American rural advocates and Japanese ones, and um, you know the rural decline in Japan is far more advanced than even what we we know. But I think it's a glimpse of our future. And when I encountered the term J-turn, I looked around at everyone else, and they all the Japanese people said, "Well, of course we know what that is," <laughs> but I don't think we've 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 really looked at it from uh, in in North America. I don't think we we've, we've really look at the demographic trends and patterns of what happens. And, and one of the things that I, you know, in this book, uh, Seki Harasan tells his story, and it's very much, he's a great storyteller. It's about his personal journey of growing up in a rural community in Niigata prefecture, um, dreaming of going to the city. And he does. He goes to Tokyo and becomes a designer and uh, is, Successful and then, and then failed. And the tragedy in his failure was he, he was lost. And, and he realized once he, he left the city how lost he was in the city. And he returned to Niigata, uh, Niigata Prefecture. This is sort of four hours away from Tokyo on the Sea of Japan, a very quiet part of, of Japan. But what was interesting is that he didn't go home. He went someplace near home and like home, and so he was still a relatively anonymous figure when he returned in his middle age. Middle aged uh, age, and um, and and he did what the Japanese refer to as a J turn. You can do an an I turn, which is um, uh, I want to go someplace I've never been there, but I've got skills, ideas, and I I I'm, I'm just going to show the locals how to do it, and that's a very familiar dynamic we've seen, and it uh, it can work well, but it can also crash and burn. It's very hard to build trust, because they know that just as you came, you can leave. Mm-hmm. Now, the U-turn is, in Japan, thought to be a very shameful um, uh, failure uh, journey. You, you go to the big city, and then you come back home. And when you come back home, well, there must be a reason you came back home, because you failed. And therefore, in your returning failure, you just readjust all your expectations back to the power dynamics that you left. And so you really do make a U-turn, and you're back where you started. Um, the J-turn, and, and this is why I was so intrigued with him telling his story, was we often don't dive into... Uh, except when we become kind of social enterprise-obsessed with some individual who's figured out some brilliant way to solve all of our problems. Um, By and large, though, we don't see who are the individuals, what is the leadership characteristics, what is the long investment and struggle that it takes to be successful in developing new ways to solve old old problems. Mm. And the Japanese really feel that what they have, observed is that the J-turn winds up being a very successful dynamic, and this is what Sekihara did. He grew up in Niigata, went to Tokyo, came back to Niigata, but not his, not his town, not his people, and as a result, he had this wonderful ability and still has this wonderful ability to be like them. So he wasn't his his ways weren't peculiar his accent wasn't so different he seemed rather familiar and yet he was not burdened by the existing um, power grid that tends to define the bounds of thinkable thought in these small rural villages that are dying and as a result he was able to take risks and do things and and organize. It's uh, first, at least the elderly people and the children who were interested in volunteering. Um, but had he done that as a local, they would have said maybe, oh, yeah, we we tried that. It didn't work. Instead, he, he had a spark. So I think the J-turn brings a spark that isn't terrifying like an I-turn, but um, is more hopeful than the U-turn. And I think this thinking about who is it that is well-positioned to make change in communities is part of the strategy that is. Uh, I don't think we've devoted enough time and attention to, or even if we have, we've looked at it in a certain way. And what I love about learning from the Japanese or the Italians or any other place is just, um, just seeing different ways to see uh, opportunities. And um, the Japanese are, are very... F- far ahead and deeper in their rural crisis. So learning from them, and learning from what they're learning um, as they navigate these problems I think is helpful to us. Not that we simply replicate what others have done because you can't just superimpose something that works in Japan and bring it here, but find elements of it, whether it's the analysis like the J-turn that is helpful to us, or um, maybe specific strategies that may inspire us.
0: Well, and what's really great about this book is that he does offer a lot of specifics. I have found um, in my search for solutions, because we're kind of desperate to find a new way forward. I um, One of the things I've heard you say is, you know, we live in a society that works, um, except it doesn't. You know, it kind of doesn't work, right? It's deeply dis- dysfunctional, and it seems like we're kind of being set up for a big fall. And so, as we seek out solutions, I find people are often really good at naming the what. What is wrong? Or what's the policy that needs to be implemented? And then in the middle, there's crickets on the how. Hmm. And Hmm. not always, but um, I find it really hard to find really kind of clear examples on how to say, really create strong community. And there's a lot of detail in this book. Um, it's, it takes time, but, but it's so ingenious. And I want to get into that. But um, mm-hmm. before we do, we're going, we're probably going to take a real quick break. So, I just want to say that we are listening you are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. You can listen globally online from ksqd.org. And our topic today is the CUNY Manifesto, the time for CUNY is now. And we're speaking with Richard McCarthy, who is the co-author of KUNI, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection. CUNY is a community that achieves a balance between belonging and freedom. Learn more by visiting thinklikepirates.com. I'm your host, Christine Barrington.
1: Hello, K-Squid listeners. I'm Tom Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program, heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM, weekdays at 4 p.m. That's progressive talking conversation with me, Tom Hartman, weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you it.
0: We're back, and would you like a friend to hear this interview on how Cooney builds citizen-led communities? Well, Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Subscribe for free from your favorite podcast platform. So now, Richard, we're back, and I'd love to get into some some of the details of the how. You know, we want people to get this book and read all the details, but I'd like to hit some of the high points. Um, He. uh, Seoshi-san, is can I say that about him or is that something only yeah, you can say? No, no, um no, I love no, no, how you can. I love how you say that. It's such he is such an endearing personality. He's he is. I'm just going to take a moment to say he is a great storyteller. Um he, he brings things into such a personal voice that it really touches the heart as well as ignite the intellect and I find that a really um, a valuable experience in a book like this. So um, I love it that that's how you speak of him as well, Sayoshi San. And so he talks about this rural management organization. Now, he, like, created this idea, right, the, the rural I, management I, organization?
1: I think so, and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to get to these kinds of specifics because it, it is quite complex. He, he is, you know, you know, in our very slim book, he describes 20 years of work of, of, of arriving in these rural villages, maybe 20 villages in a region outside of the city of Joetsu, and not a very large city. Um, the villages were um, becoming well, rusty is, is, is maybe an understatement. They, they were starting to fall apart. Uh, they may have a village mayor. The schools were starting to close down. Um, I mean, some of the so the stories you do hear about the rust belt that um, uh, you know rural communities that once functioned and no longer do what happens next and and the book is his sort of 20 year journey of figuring out what are the first steps and the second steps and and not that there's one linear path, but this is how he found a much more integrated uh, commitment to the circular economy um, an interesting way to uh, in many ways, not replace but kind of bypass local government. Um, and if in these 20 villages, there might be 20 mayors, um, and they're all competing with each other, and they're not coordinated, and in a way replace the elected local government, of which they're finding it harder and harder in Japan, not only to find people to run for office, but even for the people to vote for those who run for office. So a real interesting question about the right size of the community, which is maybe something we can talk about that also really struck me, but that by aggregating these villages, by creating, you're right, an RMO, or Regional Management Organization, which I had not heard that that terminology before, he indicated that he was inspired by by things he had seen in, in India, uh, that were named similarly, but I, I haven't actually been able to get to the bottom of it. But mm-hmm. an NGO, a nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. a community development corporation, that would get grants from local and national municipalities to actually deliver social services that were otherwise not being um, managed by local governments anymore. So people were falling in the in the gaps. Elderly people were finding themselves no longer living in functioning places. They were isolated. Young people, like he had when he was young, wanted to leave, never to return. And so he began to look at what are the elements that are needed for a community to function. And he began to take them one step at a time. But And I think absolutely, as you're right, about the how. Too often we are thrust with big macro solutions that require an extraordinary amount of capacity to accomplish or um, they're so small and isolated that they fight with each other for, for the resources. And I think his development of an RMO, so a nonprofit organization in in a place where, mind you, the nonprofit economy is not that well developed in Japan. Um, They have a very centralized state Uh, One party has run the show for most of the years since the Second World War. So we don't see a robust civil society. Um, That was also why this experiment was so interesting and exciting. Um, But what they began to do was they started off just figuring out how the forest needed to be cleaned. So they organized volunteers to thin out the forest something that used to be done by the community mm-hmm. and then was done by the local government. And then as the equation for local governments became so difficult for them to to uh, attract the funds to maintain the, the the natural infrastructure, as well as the civic and educational infrastructure and the economy, these things just weren't happening. And so he began to organize people around cleaning the forest, and he's a woodworker, so he really cared about that, and he worked in the woodworking, um, working around woodworking in the community, and, and uh, an experiment that didn't go well because it had to go to scale. Again, this whole issue of scale, which I know in Japan they're obsessed with, and certainly in the United States where bigger is better, we're obsessed with. And from there, it then went to the incredibly intricate irrigation systems that these traditional beautiful, mountainous rice-growing regions right near the sea would rely on for growing the rice. Well, the canals, the irrigation canals had not been cleaned out, so they began to organize this. And and that led to figuring out what social services also need to be organized, right. because when you begin right. to work with volunteers, your neighbors, they talk, and they begin to describe, well, you know, this is a problem that we're beginning to solve we have other problems, and, and how do we address those? They have many empty houses that were literally left when the big economic boom hit Japan, and people literally left these beautiful 200-year-old farmhouses with the contents in them, and, uh, and these assets are a real problem. I think that the RMO is a place and a political um, articulation of the challenges and how we could only solve them when we come together. And they began to pluck all the different issues that um, um, were there for the taking, because no one else really had a solution. I mean, the, the village mayors, they mean well, but they were trained to accomplish things when things were flush. And um, that's where I, I agree with you that that. that This is maybe a little glimpse of what we may be facing and how unprepared are we not only to to address really critical issues that may surprise us. We've been surprised. We may continue to be surprised, whether it's climate chaos, economic chaos. Um, The things that used to work don't work now, and the solutions are 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 not one thing. It's it's coming together and and, and, and this is where again with my, my, my love for food and food is an important sense of identity and also opportunity was as they began to come together, they began as as fifteen different villages began to reimagine that they were one community. Which right. was unheard of because they were were this village and that village and they began to really look at the RMO as the the engine that addresses um, the most urgent and everyday needs. It wasn't like a political movement, uh, except maybe the small p political movement, um, but it was very practical, very pragmatic. And what that begins to do is when you begin to meet people in their everyday lives, begin to provide practical daily interaction and problem solving then the whole idea of what community do we live in who is it that we rely on in this case each other um, and and it does take leadership and I don't think it's like you know the you know the the oh um, fearless leader kind of complex but it does take individuals who say well why not and well, that's yes what
0: and and what when what i love about it actually is that it's relationships you know for human beings relationships are fundamental it's our capacity for highly skilled social functioning that gave us our edge in the first place and this um Transformation that you describe that begins by, you know, we clean the forest and we clean these ancient canals and we're doing things together and we're talking, we're connecting, we're bonding, we're problem solving. We're actually going back to our roots of what makes us shine as human beings. It's relationships that are fundamental, not economics, not political systems. No, it's relationships. Cool. So, I find this very beautiful. It's, it's kind of um, like a, a social fractal. You know, and nature builds these fractal patterns, and it's kind of like this social fractal that that can get repeated and iterated in each community, and that community knows the solutions it needs. A community in Arizona doesn't need to clean its irrigation canals necessarily, or its forests, but something else for sure. And so, I, I just, you know, love hearing this very organic description and why I hope people will pick this book up. And read it those who are looking to kind of understand how we move forward together because there are so many details um that he goes into that both of you go into describing how and why community is actually our way forward mm-hmm.
1: mm well I, the gosh you should have written I love the way you've said that uh, i mean it's it it is um we are so fractured, and we're fractured in a very dangerous way, where we are are suspicious of and resent others, and we also allow ourselves to get marched into these cultural camps, these divides. Mm-hmm. And I've always been drawn to the bridges that that, that that bring us together. And I don't know, I think partly it's coming from New Orleans where in New Orleans, we're obsessed with that. We love to, mm-hmm. to, to build bridges and unexpected ones, and it's all about the menage. Um But I, I found that I was, you know, I think way back when I fell into food, was I was so tired of these dividing lines. Um, uh, so much of people who work for social change Allow ourselves to be defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. Right. Our, our mode, our mode of, of of social changes. We've got these ideas all figured out. We just need to get you to believe them. Mm-hmm. And I I found that that food in particular and the urban rural linkage um, uh, was was one of the the things that excited me and and, and I guess <laughs> largely describes everything I care about in part because it's that bridge that we need, that we are, are, uh, we're lost if we can't figure this out. And, and we're not – the solution isn't uh, the city's got it figure out, figured out and we just need to inform the rural people what to do. I think we need to engage uh, between urban and rural with our ears open. And rural communities have so much more of community still embedded – there's so much more cooperation just part of, you know, how do you get out of the driveway I and mean, it requires cooperation um, that is uh, based on relationships rather than institutions. Right. And, and, and as a result, I think we have something to, to you know, really to, to learn from that. Um,
2: well, and, you know you,
0: uh, I think you I, said it you've talked about it as being changing behavior first, and then the ideas follow, so it's like you know building a barn together, clearing the forest together, doing things differently and and then through the interaction, right we, we can build and get inspired with new ideas
1: and, uh, for me, it was very humbling when i, I you know I approached. Developing farmers' markets again. Donkeys years ago in the mid '90s, when there there were none in, in New Orleans, and I thought I had it all figured out. I'd written it down on paper, and and I learned that I knew very little about what rural farmers need and want, and um, and and therefore. My behavior also, <laughs> I, my ideas changed because of the behavior. It wasn't just that I came in as a behavior change um, uh, advocate. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The, the the model of behavior change comes first is is so different from how we tend to organize.
0: Well, we are going to continue this conversation, um, but, and we're going to take a break and come back with more with Richard McCarthy, the author of Cooney. You are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Would you like to be added to our news group and get advanced notice of our upcoming interviews? If so, please text Be Bold America, all caps, all one word, at 22828. That's Be Bold America at 22828. And if you have signed up already, thank you. We are speaking with Richard McCarthy, who is the author of Kuni, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban Rural Reconnection. Kuni is both a reimagining of the Japanese word for nation and an approach to reviving rural communities. It shows what happens when dedicated people invest their hearts, minds, souls, and backs into community and live in reliance with one another. We'll be back with our bold guest, Richard McCarthy, right after Jim Hightower's commentary titled, My Newspaper Died.
2: My Newspaper Died. Well, technically it still appears, but it has no life, no news, and barely a pulse. It's a mere semblance of a real paper, one of the hundreds of local journalism zombies staggering along in cities and towns that had long relied on them. Each one has a bare number of subscribers keeping it going, mostly longtime readers like me, clinging to a memory of what used to be and a flickering hope that surely the thing won't get worse. Then it does. Our papers are getting worse at a time we desperately need them to get better because they are no longer mediums of journalism, civic purpose, and local identity. Rather, they've been reduced to little more than profit siphons, steadily piping local money to a handful of distant high finance syndicates that have bought out our hometown journals. My daily, the Austin American Statesman, was swallowed up in 2019 by the nationwide Gannett chain, becoming one of more than a thousand local papers Gannett presently mass-produces under its corporate banner, the USA Today Network. But even that reference is a deception, for the publication doesn't confide to readers that it's actually a product of SoftBank Group, a multi-billion dollar Japanese financial consortium that owns and controls Gannett. SoftBank has no interest in Austin as a place, a community, or even as a newspaper market. Nor does it care one whit about advancing the principles of journalism. It's in the profit business, extracting maximum short-term payouts from the properties it owns. This has rapidly become the standard business model for American newspapering. Today, more than half of all daily papers in America are in the grip of just 10 of these money syndicates. This is Jim Hightower saying... That's why our local papers are dying. It's not a failure of journalism, but of absentee corporate owners plundering journalism. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org.
0: We're back with Be Bold America. My guest is Richard McCarthy, co-author of Kuni, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban Rural Reconnection. So, Richard, you have mentioned the word scale a couple of times, and I really want to get into this because um, I've heard you speaking about this, and um, it's really gripped me. You said This particular quote, which captivated my heart, you said that the size of a place in which we live has a direct correlation to its caring capacity of its ecosystem around you, and I would say also for the social ecosystem. So how does scale impact our capacity to care?
1: Well, scale has been something that has driven me nuts for years. Um, and maybe I can give an example and then I'll I'll ask I'll respond to the question directly um, but when I began to develop farmers markets, what I encountered every step of the way from funders from government though you know we had success we've had success of course, but it was like ah oh, this is great when you go to scale, get back to me because that's then when we're there and it is this just Default, cultural default that we always fall back into that bigger is better, that, you know, we've got to, we've got to have greater impact. Um, I mean, impact has now become impactful. I mean, you, you cannot escape it. And with farmers markets in particular, the whole issue of access to food and, and how successful are farmers markets in providing access to food? Well, when you talk about scale and efficiency, they're hardly high up on the ranks of, of, of uh, efficacy because if you want to move food to, say, vulnerable people, well, that's where the food bank model comes in, where you just you drive through, you pick up your food, and you move on. But if we want to look at other measures of success rather than just volume of food, but maybe nutritional behavior change. Um, personal relationships, um, or um, a contextual understanding of why a particular ingredient matters when we get to food sovereignty issues. Well, in that regard, by design, the ancient mechanism of farmer's markets are the most effective tool out there because you are forced to have social interaction many, many times when you visit a farmer's market. You don't just go to wear the tomatoes and you just get tomatoes. You get to talk to different farmers and you have a financial transaction with them, the different vendors in the market. And those transactions are ones that you build so many more valuable assets than just I brought food home um, that I can then feed to my family. You learn you have interactions while you're queuing up and talking to people and finding out what weird thing did they buy. All of these are the um, the intricacies of what you get when you don't go big. You don't go to scale. the 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 small and agile, nimble farmers market is mm. the example I know best. But there are there are others where um, small scale gives you access to relationships, access to power. And when I began to, to work with, with Sakihara, I found that this whole obsession, because he's gone from the mega city of Tokyo to these small, dying rural villages, he, he didn't have this idea that, oh, um, small is always better, um, because you can be too small, you can be too vulnerable. And and some things may just die because they are so small. And that was, of course, the urgency of how do we save what's left of these incredible livelihoods where people work the land and take care of the water quality of the rice that they raise and so forth. Well, by being small and agile, um, you gain access to power. Um, But it can be so small that it feels claustrophobic. So he began to question, is there a right size of the community? And then I began to to look into this issue, and a lot of the utopian societies were uh, really fixated on this issue of scale and size, and that maybe there is a balance between size, there's safety in numbers, and small scale where you get intimacy and access to power and people, and you're able to learn. And this, for me, went when he began to share share these ideas, um, because it was at the core of what he was doing, was how to defend and preserve these right-sized communities where you have enough pluralism, enough people, enough diversity of opinions, where um, it's not a tyranny of small places, but you're not so large like the mega city where you feel lost, where you have no connection to seasons or the landscape or to wildness or to people. You, you know, when you're in the megacity, you, you're like a cog in a wheel. And, um, and what you get being in a smaller place is something that I heard fishermen describe to me many times over when asked, why do they fish? They'd always say the same thing, freedom. And I think that there is the freedom that is found in smaller places, the freedom to move about and have relationships that are are, are based on um, more than just the, the 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 loose social tie of hello in the morning. Though I'm a big believer in thinking that's you know an, an important part of social life as well. Um, so this whole question of scale is one that. We are not very well attuned to ask, does it matter? We almost in- inevitably say, you know, bigger is better, greater impact, um, and end of story. And I think what we get from encountering people like um, Sekihara, uh and his Kuni and the RMO is there are those who are questioning this question, this issue of scale. And I think it's more of a rural conversation, and I also believe that our our era of, of and this comes back to the carrying capacity of large crazy unsustainable mega cities are, are are not sustainable we cannot carry them we don't we can't even figure out what to do with our trash let alone um, uh, taking care of the, of the soil
0: right and and, and, so, and loneliness is is just epidemic and people yeah, become I, I I think you know, if you're around, surrounded by all these people, and yet everyone's so lonely because they aren't organically connecting. I really do think that community gets built around taking care of the world around you. Um, you know, it's like the model of the original peoples of this land, right? They they had to live, they had to take they took care of the earth and they tended the forests and they, they tended their crops as they moved around and that creates all kinds of traditions and sto- moments for storytelling and interaction and laughing and playing and we're all when we're all just cogs in this big industrial machine what we get are mm-hmm. these epidemic mental health issues like we have now right in our big society yep.
1: Well, and, you know, and that's also one of the things that I think is so interesting about this model is this is not, Cooney is not just a, because he talks about autonomous communities and, you know, that pricks my ears up and I got very intrigued, what do you mean by this? And the autonomy that he was looking for and, and, and the, the Cooney is the goal, RMOs, the regional management organization is the tool that gets us to this. Much more complex interactive system and circular economy and rebuilding democracy and regenerating the community and its identity and sense of itself um, is it could be interpreted as like this is a back to the land movement and uh, you know those who are not in this inside the community boundaries to hell with you um, that's not the goal here and that's Also, what excited me, and this is where the urban-rural linkage is, what happens when a community becomes healthier, begins to take care of its people and itself and the land, and begins to develop the confidence uh, and the self-care, it becomes a very attractive place to visit Mm -hmm. because those of us, as you describe, in the city with the the, the sense of loneliness and, and aimlessness and, and alienation and all of that, we get very excited when we visit places that seem to function. this was always that. my sense of, of what happened in, in why on a Saturday morning when the weather was dreadful, people would still come out to the farmers' market they couldn 't always put their finger on it, but they would always allude to something about this experience makes me feel whole this Connects me to something that just makes sense, and in japan the you know the, the role of rice the role of of, of um, seasonality is my gosh they, they they know location and seasonality of products um, and so much so that the, the identity of places is defined by these um, ingredients, but there is a real desire to reconnect to that old myth of Japan where people worked in rice fields. So it, it's it's an important part of the identity, even if you have no experience with it.
0: And, and so... And with Kuni, right, sorry, people people get to... The, the urbanites tend to visit these villages, and then they purchase products made in the village, and then they they get invited in, right, to the local rituals. They almost become sort of honorary citizens of this community. I found that incredibly captivating.
1: I, I did too and and i I felt that, wow, you know it takes an infrastructure to get a product from rural to urban, a certain approach, certain infrastructure and and they do this work, but they do it with a with a an incredible like um just adaptation where when you buy the rice or the um, umobushi plums that they 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 cure in the in the sun or any of the products that they produce, when you are a consumer of these products, because you come out to, to to the villages and you purchase it, or it's sent to you via their incredible distribution network in Japan, um, you are not just a consumer. You are actually um, a party to the rice covenant. And... The Rice Covenant is this idea, as you described it. You as a consumer, uh, an urban dweller who's looking for some meaning in life on weekends and comes out to help with the farming or to participate in civic rituals that you would otherwise not be invited to be part of, Shinto rituals and, and, and harvest festivals, that you then become like a member of the community. That is part of the Rice Covenant. And, and this is to me the whole kicker, because coming from New Orleans where when large um, hurricanes would come through and top of mind was who are the farmers I know inland who might be able to put our family up if we need to, is not a crazy idea. And so the fact that the Rice Covenant is like an insurance policy, mm-hmm. that in times of stress, whether it is plague or tsunami, or earthquake, that you can come find safe haven in this community because you've already expressed a desire to be part of this community, is really trading on your assets of we are isolated rural communities, but we have rebuilt our sense of togetherness, our sense of purpose, our sense of reason why we exist, and are open to invite you in is the opposite of our urban-rural discourse in America, Absolutely. And, you know, so it's it's it's
0: a it's relational it's, it's, insurance. I love that, right? Yeah. It's it's built on relationships. And in case you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Richard McCarthy, who's the co-author of Cooney, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection. Kuni is both a reimagining of the Japanese word for nation and an approach to reviving rural connections. His website is thinklikepirates.com. I'm your host, Christine Barrington. Join KSQD this evening for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune in to Intersections this evening at 6 p.m., KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. All right, we're back, and Richard, um, there is just so much, right? I mean, we could talk for hours about this incredible I work. That, that way. Yes, that you and and uh, Sayoshi um, San have created together. So we urge everybody buy the book and read it. But in the f- few minutes that we have left, I want to invite you to engage Jill's Keep, Stop, Start. So, for those who are envisioning you know, implementing CUNY or just from your perspective, um, what could people keep doing in their communities, stop doing, and start doing as they relate to your work?
1: Mm. Well, I think they should start going out of town if you live in an urban center and go visit smaller communities. And see what's going on in in those communities, whether it is a festival or whether it is just a roadside stand, um, and and try and figure out whether this place is working, whether it's functioning, whether it it you know, and I think seeing that may help you look at things with with new eyes um, in terms of what to stop doing, um, stop. Stop falling for for cynical solutions mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, and 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 keep eating and growing local and 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 uh, and keep learning how to do new, you know practical skills um, because one thing it does is it um, it engineers our brains differently and we become interested in practical things rather than Um, the impractical things that I know I spend too many of my hours doing, which is sitting in front of a computer on Zoom, pretending that that's something. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, I I was reading an article recently in The Guardian about a consultant who oversaw security at the American and European embassies in Eastern Europe. And he's now consulting for the super rich who want to protect themselves from the systemic collapse they're sure is coming. And so they ask them, what can we do to make sure that our security details stay loyal to us? And how do we survive? And he's consulting with them and he's saying well here's the answer create sustainable farms within a three hour drive of the city and connect with those communities because the way that you protect yourself in a systemic collapse is the same thing that you do to prevent it from happening in the first place and he said and he said my my clients aren't interested they don't believe him, but he's creating all these farms. That's in upstate New York, and he is actually doing it. And he's trying to persuade these people, build connections within these communities. That's how you will survive by being connected to these farms. And I just thought of of Cooney and and
1: absolutely. And and I am I am in upstate New York, and I have to say, yesterday I was in the hardware store, and the man behind me who had his. Bill's cap on and was sad about the Super Bowl. And uh, he was buying giant shelving units to put dried beans on and and grains because he just thinks food is going to start disappearing and we need to be prepared. And it's so interesting in terms of what signals are people hearing and listening. And, you know, of course, there's fear and anxiety and loathing and paranoia. But there is something in the air about, like, it ultimately comes down to food security and and relationships. And we think we're really clever, but that's what it's always come down to.
0: Isn't it wonderful to know that ultimately it's actually... A really simple solution. The hard part mm-hmm. is getting people to shift the mindset. It's like the—I don't know if you've ever heard of the Donatella Meadows uh, project. She wrote *The Limits to Growth*, and she describes mm-hmm. uh-huh. all the different acupuncture points that you know you can hit to shift a system. And the most powerful acupuncture point is actually shifting mindset. But she said it's yeah. the hardest one to affect. And the glory is is that encouraging people to connect with each other, get their hands in the soil, grow food together, is actually something that comes naturally to us if we can just get to re-experience it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun to talk about. These it, issues that I think are really complex, but also ultimately within reach. Hmm.
0: And they are. And I, you know, I was just, I wanted to read this quote. I, we have a local indigenous author here. His name is Stan Rushworth. And he just wrote a book um, about interviewing all the indigenous leaders across Turtle Island, right? The American continent. Uh-huh. And he interviewed Dr. Kyle White, who is a professor, um, I believe, at Northwestern, and he talks about kinship. And this is what Kyle said about kinship. Kinship refers to relationships of mutual responsibility, where we care for each other and we create bonds with each other that make it such that regardless of what the law says and regardless of how severe a problem is or regardless of what our rights are, we have an abiding sense that we need to care care for each other. Mm. And I really see that in in Kuni and in this this beautiful desire to take care of the elders and educate the children about the, the the culture, make them fall in love with the region and want to sink their hands back into these ancient practices, you know, thousands of years old in Japan. And I hope that many people will will reach for this book and read it and be inspired by it. Well, me too. Me
1: too. Yeah. There's so much good news out there, and this is one of them.
0: This is one of them. Yeah. Well, I want to give you the last minute to to riff. Any last words for our listeners as we close this interview? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think of the man who was playing all the shelving space to put all the food that he's going to be stockpiling because there's going to be no more food. Um, and his instincts may be right, and, and it was uh, a recognition that things aren't working. But just because things aren't working and things may be collapsing around us, it doesn't mean that this is all bad news and that... The more that we run towards um, the things that make us happy, um, the things that get us away from devices and connect us to other people, um, that's the brightness that will help us um, grow a new world within the shell of this old one that's just kind of in tatters.
0: Growing a new world together, that is a vision. That I can get behind. Richard, thank you so much for <laughs> joining us on Be Bold America and for being our bold and impressive guest. So, um, everyone, remember to pick up this brilliant book, Kuni, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban Rural Reconnection, written by Richard McCarthy and Seoshi Sekihara. What's next on Be Bold America? Well, join us on Sunday, February 26th, when we'll be discussing You Are the Universe, Ram Dass Maps the Journey. One of Be Bold America's goals is to foster a bold, democratic America with informed, principle-centered citizens making decisions. The You Are the Universe guidebook for teens and adults of all ages is an exceptionally illustrated and arranged book of Ram Dass' captivating stories of transformation. Find out how you are the universe by joining Be Bold America on Sunday, February 26th at 5 p.m. And if you are just joining us... Let me give you a reminder that Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Now, you may listen to the show anytime for free by subscribing through your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple, Google, and Spotify. And I want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineer, Eliza James, and our station's program director, Howard Feldstein. You are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org and stay tuned for intersections with Seth, Shapiro. My name is Christine Barrington, in for Jill Cody this week, and thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.